Church, this morning, I want to pick up from where we left off last time in the message I shared with you on sovereign grace. Can you remember the message? I wasn't planning on making this specific message a series of messages, but in my time of preparation this week, I felt the Lord impressing on my heart to expand on this concept of His sovereign grace. And more specifically, how do you and I trust in His sovereign grace? Because listen, it's one thing to know something true about God intellectually, and another thing to actually trust in the truth for ourselves and then to live out that truth, right? And so for the sake of the series and, and we're, what we're going to uncover together and learn together, I'm going to rename the series Trusting in God's Sovereign Grace. Trusting in God's Sovereign Grace. It's just a title, by the way, but I believe that title will better capture the essence of where we've come from and where we're going. Is that okay, church? Now, I want you to ask the person next to you, I want you to ask them, do you trust in God's sovereign grace? Ask the question and answer it yourself, and remember what you said, because I'm going to remind you of that question a bit later on. Have you got the answer? Okay, good, let's move on. Church, go with me to your Bibles, um, to Exodus chapter 14. And while you're doing that, by way of quick recap, in the first part of this series, if you would recall, we looked at a portion of Scripture in Exodus chapter 2. And can you remember the aspects of God's sovereign grace that we were able to draw from those verses? I'm not sure about you, but it's really comforting to know that whatever we're experiencing in this life, whatever challenge we're going through, However deep the pain is that we serve a God who hears, who remembers, who sees, and who knows. He hears our cries. He remembers His covenant with us. He sees the bigger picture, and He knows that help is on the way. That's the God we serve. And these aspects of His sovereign grace will never change. They are just as true today as they were back then because as Christians, bless you, we are His covenantal people by faith, and God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? And so church, as we journey on from that truth, and as we take that truth with us, the question then arises, are we trusting in that truth? Are we trusting in God's sovereign grace? Because again, it's one thing to know that truth intellectually, but another thing to trust in that truth and then to live out that truth. That's the challenge for each of us. And that's why I want us to look at this specific portion of Scripture today that we find here in Exodus chapter 14. Now just a quick reminder, when God gave assurance to the people of Israel that He heard, that He remembered, saw, and knew at that point, they were still a long way from being set free by Pharaoh and the parting of the Red Sea. They were still a long way from the land of promise. There was still a lot that they would have to experience, but when we get to Exodus chapter 14, they are now standing before the Red Sea. Having been led out of captivity and having seen the mighty hand of God, not once, but ten times that God pours out these devastating plagues on the inhabitants of, of Egypt. 
They are now standing before one of the greatest miracles ever recorded in the Bible, where the Red Sea is about to part, allowing them to pass through on dry land and then destroy their enemies forever as it swallows them up. And yet, they stand there afraid and questioning whether or not they should have been delivered in the first place. And you know, church, when we read the story, we think to ourselves, how slow to learn could they possibly be? We probably say things like, I mean, how stupid could they be? How do you see God's hand so tangibly? How do you see how he so miraculously set you free from the hand of Pharaoh and still question him after all of that? And knowing what we know because we have the Bible, this is not the end of their questioning or disbelief because they still end up wandering for another 40 years in the wilderness before they get to the land of promise. We look at this and, and we are just bewildered either by their lack of intellect or their lack of faith. Am I the only one that has read the Bible like that and come to that type of conclusion? But let me ask you this question. If you had an honest look at your own life and your own story of how God has delivered and saved you from captivity and a lifestyle of sin, have there been times along your Christian journey where those sins would somehow find their way back? And you would think to yourself that you've completely blown it. Have there been moments where you've wondered, and this is not theologically possible if you've truly given your heart to the Lord, but have there been moments where you've wondered if you were truly saved and set free in the first place because everything just seemed so difficult and so hopeless? If you're really honest, have there been moments where you've asked if this, this Christian thing was really worth it? And where you've had thoughts of, of finding comfort in going back to your old life? Have there been times where your past sins seemed, even seemed more attractive than the life you now live? Does that sound familiar to anyone this morning? Absolutely. If you've been saved longer than a few months, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And you see, church, we're no different to the Israelites standing before the Red Sea. They'd been delivered from Egypt. They found themselves walking away from their old life. And all of a sudden, that which held them captive determines to come after them again. And as they look up to see that which held them captive and is now determined to come and take them away again, what do they do? They murmur. They complain. They question God. They question their deliverance. They long to go back. And if that's not an option, they will resign themselves to just lay down and die. We read that and we say, that's just pathetic. But church, this is a picture of the Christian experience at various times of our own lives. This is a picture of our continued struggle with sin. This is a picture of the battle we fight on an ongoing basis. And this is a picture of what God is doing as he delivers each and every one of us from our sin yesterday, today, and until glory. What does that mean? That means that salvation has been achieved, is being achieved, and is going to be achieved. Number one. Your salvation, past tense, means that you are justified and that you have been declared righteous. Number two, your salvation, present tense, means that you are being sanctified. You are progressively being delivered from sin. And guess what? That sin doesn't want to let you go. 
And then number three, your salvation future tense is that moment we all greatly anticipate when we will ultimately and completely be delivered from our sin in glorification at the end of the age. Amen. Amen. Justification, sanctification, and glorification. When we are finally there and it's finally done, we are no longer subject to these temptations anymore. Is there anyone here today that is looking forward to that day when that that constant struggle between the flesh and the spirit is over? But in the meantime, there are those days where we look up and here come the Egyptians. Here come the horses and chariots. And you know what? We're not all that certain that we don't want them to get us. Why? Because we're tired. Because the struggle is hard. Because we remember certain things that brought our flesh so much comfort. Because the pursuit of the enemy is constant. And you know, church, it's ironic, but sometimes we long for those comforts. Sometimes we long for that pleasure and that familiarity. Are there any authentic Christians in the house this morning that know what I'm talking about? So church, what am I saying? I'm saying don't think for a moment that Exodus chapter 14 doesn't apply to you. Because it absolutely does. But you know what? That's not all. Yes, it does apply to us all, but here's how I want us to understand the application of Exodus chapter 14. I want us to understand that it gives you and me a bird's eye view of what's happening. It gives us a different perspective in this process as God is delivering us from the land of our affliction. Because here's the thing, when we're experiencing it, we're not thinking about this perspective. When we're experiencing it, all we know is that we are between a a rock and a hard place, or in the case of the Egyptians, between a rock and a wet place, right? You'll get that later, maybe. (laughs) All we know is that the Egyptians are bearing down on us, and there appears to be nowhere left to go. That's all we see, right? And that's all they could see. But if they could see this from God's perspective, it would look completely different. And as we know the story, and as we read the story, there was one who could see. Moses stood there and did not have the same experience and same perspective that every other Israelite had because Moses had been in on the divine perspective. Look with me at the first four verses, and let's begin to identify God's divine perspective in all of this. And what it truly means to trust in God's sovereign grace. This is what it says from verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Piahiroth, between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land... The wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. So church, with what we've just read in mind, I want to give you a comparison of the different perspectives, our perspective and God's perspective. Here's our perspective. Here's how we experience the world. 
When something like this happens, when we go into the wilderness and it doesn't go according to plan, and it looks like things are about to take a turn for the worst, our automatic assumption at that moment is God let that one slip by. If you can't say amen, maybe you should say enna. That's our automatic assumption. God didn't see this one coming. Or God wasn't prepared for this. Or God wasn't powerful enough to stop this. Or he just doesn't like me anymore. This is the way we interpret reality in that moment when we see it coming. And it looks like this terrible thing is about to happen to us. However, what Moses knew that the rest of Israel didn't was that this was part of a sovereign decree over God's people. He knew that this was not happening by accident, but like everything else in the world, it happened because of God's sovereign grace. Just listen to these definitive words and statements that he uses here. God says, you shall encamp. Pharaoh will say, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. He will pursue them. I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Those are definitive statements right there. And you see, church, God doesn't come to Moses and say, Moses, don't panic. But I just happened to notice that Pharaoh and the Egyptians are coming. I'm going to try to work something out for you. You just hold on as best as you can, and I'll see what I can do. No, that's not, this, that's not the way that God says this. God says to Moses beforehand, this is what's going to happen, and here why, here's why it's going to happen, and here, how's, here is how it's going to happen. He's even specific as to where. In front of Pyaharoth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Belzephon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. Very specific. So God gives this sovereign decree to Moses, and the implication of this church is that firstly, the God who delivers us is in control of every single detail. Let me say that again so that that sinks in. The God who delivers us is in control of every single detail. That's the first thing. And because he's in control of every Detail. Secondly, there's nothing that Satan can do to thwart his plan. That's very important to keep in mind because let's be honest. Life is hard when the Egyptians are bearing down on you and you are between the Egyptians and the sea with nowhere to run. It's hard to remember these things in the thick of it, which is why you and I need to remember them now. Amen? Which is why you need to rehearse them over and over and over again in your quiet time to, when you're alone and when you're with your family. So that when you Egyptians bear down on you, the answer is already clear. Job put it this way in Job chapter 42 verse 2. He said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Christian, you need to know this truth. Satan cannot thwart the decrees of God. Satan cannot thwart the plans of God. He is in control of every single detail. Psalm chapter 135 verse 6 says, Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. 
Whatever God pleases, he does. God doesn't do anything because he's being forced to, right? He doesn't do anything because he's been taken by surprise. He doesn't do anything because he's trying to make up for his mistakes because God doesn't make mistakes. Whatever he pleases, he does. Ecclesiastes chapter 8 verse 3 says, Be not hasty to, do, uh, to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. Amen? In other words, don't oppose God, because you're not going to win, my friend. Church, the God who delivers us is in control of every single detail. There's nothing that Satan can do to thwart his plan. And thirdly, this is important. Thirdly, there is nothing that can separate us from God's saving love. Absolutely nothing. The Israelites needed to know this. You and I need to know this. We need to know this because there are days when we doubt this truth just like they did. And church, excuse me if this seems a bit off track, but I need to hear these, these words this morning. Maybe you do too. There's a familiar passage of Scripture in Romans chapter 8, verses 35 to 39 that goes like this. It says this. It says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? Or distress? Or persecution? Or famine? Or nakedness? Or danger? Or sword? Or the Egyptians? Or Pharaoh? Or his chariots? Or horses? Or whatever you're going through right now? As it is written... For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regard, regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But even though we are regarded as a sheep to be slaughtered, no. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Why can I say that? For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know what that means, church? That means that God didn't bring Israel out of Egypt hoping and wondering if He could save them. He brought Israel out of Egypt knowing He would save them. That means that God didn't bring you and me out of our captivity hoping that he could save us. He brought us out knowing that he would save us. For all those who have put their faith in God and in his work through the person of Jesus Christ, just know this. God is not hoping that he can save you on that day when things seem insurmountable. God knows that he will save you on that day. This is the God that we serve. This is the God in whom we trust. This is the God to whom we have given ourselves, and we, church, can know with absolute confidence that He is able to guard that which we have entrusted to Him against that day. And because this is true of my God, I can trust in His sovereign grace even when I'm between my Egypt and my Red Sea. 
Which brings us to the next part of our text, verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, What is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them encamped at the sea by Pyahiroth in front of Baal Zephon. So church, just get this picture in your mind. If there was ever a moment where the Israelites had their backs against the wall or against the sea, in this case, this was it. This was as severe as it could ever get. And before I read the next part, and as we start to see how they, their thinking degrades, just remember that we are not that different in moments of our own Christian journey. Verse 10, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Again, we may read this and, and go, you know, these Israelites, what a weak bunch of people they were. But church, can I be real for a moment? This is you sometimes. This is me sometimes. Something happens and all of a sudden we lose our minds. Something life-threatening happens and all of a sudden, even if it is just for a brief moment, we believe and hold on to this notion that God saved me just so that he could bring me to this point and embarrass me. Or you know what, God saved me just so that he could get my hopes up and disappoint me because he doesn't really like me. God saved me, but now he's forgotten about me. Or God saved me, but he doesn't love me as much as he loves other people because look how easy it is for them in their Christian journey and how hard it is for me. And church, you know what, this, what that type of thinking tells us? It tells us that we have forgotten our deliverance. I mean, just think about the Israelites for a moment. Think about what has happened coming up to this point. Think about all that God has done in order to identify Israel as his own special people. And in order to deliver Israel after hundreds of years of slavery out of Egypt. Think about everything that God has done for them and think about everything that God has done for us. And what happens? There are some hoofbeats, some horses and chariots on the way. And all of a sudden, we believe that the God who controls the Nile and the locusts and the flies and the sun and the stars and the death angel has suddenly run out of power. And it's like, well, he can do that thing, but he can't do this thing, right? He's done that, but not this. He can see to other people's problems, but not my problems. 
I know that there are other Christians who can find comfort, but there's never been a Christian in the history of mankind who's hurting as much as I'm hurting right now. And there's no way that God has enough comfort to help me in what I'm going through. Or maybe it's like this. No one has ever messed up as bad as I've messed up. And yes, the blood of Jesus may have covered the sins of other people throughout the history of mankind, but there's never been anyone who's messed up like me. And I'm sure, I'm convinced that God didn't have this sin in mind when Jesus went to the cross. Are you hearing me this morning, church? This is us. This is you. This is me. You just let a few Egyptians show up and all of a sudden our faith is gone. And we, we, we resort back to a, a slave mentality. Again, if we can't say amen, maybe Aina is a better response, right? This is us, friends. That, that heartache comes. That disappointment comes. That loss comes. That failure comes. That sin raises its ugly head again. And all of a sudden, all we see are the Egyptians. And what we do not see is the God who has dealt with him again and again and again. Which brings us to the final part of our text this morning. Look with me at verses 13 and 14. This is incredible. Look what it says. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Did you get that, church? Did you hear those powerful statements? Fear not. Stand firm. See the salvation of the Lord. The Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. Or to put it another way, if we could put it in a bit of a, a catchphrase, fear not. Stand firm, watch God, and be quiet. Be quiet. And this is not being quiet in the sense of you being an inactive or lazy Christian, no. This is you being quiet in the sense of you having done everything in your own capabilities and then trusting fully in God's sovereign grace. Fear not, stand firm, watch God, and be quiet. A church, what does this mean for you and me? That means, yes, you know what, I'm between the Egyptians and the Red Sea at different times of my life, this side of eternity. That means, yes, I'm facing one of the biggest challenges in my life right now, and I really feel like, at times, I really feel like going back to my old life. That means, yes, I'm experiencing some of the deepest painful emotions I've ever felt, and I'm having these thoughts of giving up because it's just too hard. That means, yes, all those things are true of me at different times of my Christian journey, but because my God is sovereign, but because He is the same yesterday, today, and forever, because He's always going to fight for me, I can overcome and I can take on the posture of fear not, stand firm, watch God, and be quiet. I can trust Him, church. You can trust Him. We can trust in His sovereign grace. Because you know what, now we're not just looking at it from a human perspective. We're looking at it from a divine perspective, and from God's divine perspective, He always delivers His people. Amen? This has and always 
will be true of God. And so the next time you hear those hosts of horses galloping towards you, the next time the Egyptians get so close that you can almost see the, the white of their eyes, the next time that you're tempted to just lay down and give up, the next time you are tempted to shake your fist at God because he, he delivered you only to disappoint you, remember there has been a sovereign decree declared over your life and nothing is happening by accident. Remember that, that this is God's providential plan and He is working out your salvation in accordance with that which will bring Him maximum glory. Church, that's good news. That's good news, amen. Amen. And friends, the next time you wonder whether or not God really loves you, or whether or not He just brought you out here so that He could bury you by the sea, remind yourself that as you see your Egyptians bearing down in you, that God didn't deliver you by putting to death somebody else's firstborn. No, He delivered you with the death of his only begotten firstborn. So whether or not, church, if you want to know whether or not God really loves you, don't look at your own heart. Don't look at your own circumstances. Don't look at your own pain and don't look at your own fears. If you want to know whether or not God really loves you, just look at the cross. Look at the cross, and I dare you to look at the cross and say that God doesn't love you. And so if I had to remind you of that question earlier, that question of whether or not you trust in God's sovereign grace, the truth is you may not have all the answers as to why you're enduring what you're enduring right now or what you've just come through or what you're going into. You may not have all the answers as to why life has dealt you this difficult hand. But what you will have is the answer to this question. Can God deliver? The answer is a, is a resigning yes. Because you see, church, your life is not the summation of your present circumstances. It is the summation of you having been delivered past tense, of you progressively being delivered present tense, and finally, of you ultimately being delivered into the arms of your Savior Jesus, future tense, and where there are no more Egyptians for you to contend with. And I want to say to you this morning, until then, Christian, until then, fear not. Stand firm. Watch God. And be quiet.